This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Dig it. Can you dig it? Can you dig it, everybody? Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello for the second official, the third overall edition of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse. How are you, everybody? I know you can't hear me. I know you can't even see where I'm at right now. I'm actually... So, fun fact about me that I know you guys probably don't care about, but I care about because I think it's pretty funny. Um, so, I moved to... I live in Boston currently. If I don't know. I don't know if how many of you know that or how many of you listen to this that do know my current whereabouts, but I am holed up in the city of Boston, the beautiful city of Boston right now. There's not much to do right now. They're taking this thing pretty seriously out here to pertain to the coronavirus and everything related to it. So I came out here to work in a job in technology sales for a pretty reputable company out here. And so I thought I was going to get the whole, you know, yo pro in the new big city type of thing. And uh, that is not what happened at all. I have been working from my bedroom closet for the last seven going on eight months. It has been a very interesting experience. I have stared at the same spot at my wall for, I would say, a grand total of probably, so I work eight, like eight hours a day. I've worked, you know, 40 hours a week, the whole, you know, whole, whole, whole thing. I've probably stared at the same spot of my, on my wall for about 500 hours out of the course of my life. I never thought I would say that about a, a single spot on the wall than what I'm saying about right now. So that is a little bit about me and my life. So again, I know you probably don't care, but it's my podcast. And I thought that was pretty funny because, you know, kind of just wanting to take in all the things that have been kind of going on around us and everything in this emotionally charged time. And so last week we kind of talked about the specter of 2020, kind of how everything was working out with how the new, the old year rather, was carrying into the new year, and how it was already kind of, kind of fucked, you know, from a little bit of a, li you know, just all perspectives. To be quite honest, with you. politically, socially, economically, there are a lot of people hurting right now, and there are a lot of people hurting for a lot of different reasons, and that's a very, very complicated problem to solve. And from my estimations and my understandings about this, because I live by myself out in Boston. Actually, I don't have any roommates. I don't have anything that kind of would deter me from. So. I have a lot of free time. Let's just take it that way. I have a lot of free time. I think a lot. I read a lot. I Obviously, I write a blog now. I have a podcast, don'treadthisblog.com. If you want to check anything out, they're all posted on there, all my posts from the last year. And so it's given me a lot of time to reflect and to learn things and to kind of study these simple things about 
what is going on in our time and kind of how we can do it. And like I said in the opening episode, I want this to be, I believe we're in a crisis of conversation. And I want this to kind of be an outlet for people to, or for me at least, and hopefully for you as a listener, to kind of get some nuance from all of the the endless shit throwing at the walling that we are all um, involved in right now from a lot of perspectives. And it doesn't have an identity. This is a non-identifiable problem, meaning that it comes from everything, every type of person, every type of political ideology, every type of ethnicity, every type of gender, every type of sexual orientation. It is not identifiable by a person, but I do think it's identifiable by a trend. And so that trend is going to be the subject of the podcast this week. I keep on thinking about saying blog, but then again, I realize I am talking and not writing into a Google Doc and then posting it to don'treadthisblog.com. So in this podcast, we are going to be kind of going over what I think is a large genesis. It's not the single thing that I think is causing a lot of this because I think there are a lot of, not unrelated, but unrelated to this subject issues that are being discussed right now. And so I kind of want to delve into it. And so in order to delve into it, we have to go backwards. We've got to go backwards actually about, so June 28th, this is uh, the second or third week of January that I'm recording this. So about 101 and one half years ago. So I don't know how much of you guys know about history. I I like history personally because um, my dad is a big fan of history. He just bought the, um, I don't know if you guys know the giant Ulysses S. Grant book, the Union General that came out. He's a big uh, Civil War fan and Revolutionary War fan. He likes uh, studying all that other stuff and the the uh, heroes and the the patriots that were involved in all of that conflict and the people who really kind of made shit better for a lot of people. So it kind of started with my dad and I like all, a lot of my history teachers in high school were really cool. I took some really cool history class in college and have always been kind of interested. In, and now I'm getting into more of the uh, psychological, philosophical side of it. I read a lot of um, philo- more philosophy now, most certainly than I did when I was in, even in college uh, about, um, I would say, nine months ago. So I've really kind of picked up on that and really tried to move that forward just to kind of understand, you know, looking back to go forward as it were. So if you guys know anything about the 20th century, I would say a lot happened in the 20th century. And a lot of that stuff that happened in the 20th century was really, really fucking awful. Like, it was really, really bad. So we have the Great Depression that happened. We have the um, a lot of pandemic outbreaks. We had wars. We had all this other stuff. We had um, United States strife. We had major, major world conflict and major, major problems. And so a lot of bad shit happened in the 20th century. And a lot of people ranging from... Jordan Peterson to anybody in politics really will tell you that not a lot of the, like the 20th century was a rough time to be alive. It was a rough time to be alive. Now my grandparents, my grandpa is the oldest, um, the oldest person that is still living in my family and he's 81 and he was born in 1939. So he was born kind of after the depression, but kind of right in, like he grew up in World War II. And so he probably doesn't remember a lot of it because, I mean, he was really young at that point. I don't really remember any of us that can really know anything that was below like six years old because he was born in 1939. World War II went till 1945. So he would have been six years old when the war was over. Um, His dad, I don't believe, fought. His dad was an immigrant from Italy. 
and uh, both of his parents were immigrants, actually. So they did not fight for, um, they did not fight in the war. They didn't really do anything. He was, he went into the Air Force and did a bunch of other things. He was never deployed into war, but he kind of was in that era. And he told me multiple times, and so was my grandmother, and so was a lot of people that have um, been involved, a lot of those uh, ladies and gentlemen that have been involved in that time group say it's just a very different world. And they kind of really grew up in a trial by fire type of situation. And from my studies of both what I've heard and asked of my grandparents and people of their age group and other people in that sort of age vicinity is that it's not all, like I said, with a lot of the problems we're facing today, it can't be all solved by a single genesis. But I want to go back to one specific catalyst that I think most of the bad shit that kicked off the rest of the bad shit happened. And that date is June 28th, 1919. So exactly five years after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the presumed heir to the then Austro-Hungarian throne, the Allied and Central Powers signed the Treaty of Versailles, ending World War I. And World War I, like I mentioned before, along with a lot of the other stuff, was fucking awful. It was terrible. It was the quote-unquote war to end all wars, as it were. And no one, it was one thing that no one was like going to do, like, okay, let's run it back, guys, let's try it again. Like, no. Like, no one wanted to do a World War I again. And so that was the big emphasis of this date, June 28th, 1919, was we do not want another World War I. So, going back to some quick, awful statistics from World War I. 9 million people died in direct conflict, with 13 million civilians perishing in the process also. Multiple genocides spawned, the Spanish flu pandemic broke out too, which killed up to 100 million more people by some estimates. So, after the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, lines were, qu were quickly drawn. In a massive domino effect, it seemed that literally everyone in the Eastern world declared war on each other, forcing the participating nations into two camps. And just to clarify, by Eastern world, I mean everything that is not North America. So basically all of Europe and, you know, the kind of the Middle East and some, all of Europe and some of the Middle East, I'll just say. So the Allied powers, consisting of the United States, who was brought into the war later, Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, and Japan formed the Allied powers. And they formed against the Central Powers, which consisted of Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria. So those are the two final factions that kind of drew lines against one another and just started shooting shit at each other and everything else. So then the bloodshed started, trenches were dug, the horrors of chemical warfare were first introduced to the world, advanced technologies like flamethrowers were introduced to the world, bombs were dropped, people were shot, people were stabbed, and all in all it was just beyond an awful existence. And so it, it was much beyond anything in our modern comprehension. We had never seen anything like this before. So. I've kind of thought about this before and how our world would handle such a conflict as this, and my guess is we would not do it well. We would not, we would not handle a modern-day World War I well at all. And we, like, we can't even take it when me, people say mean shit to us on Twitter. And so God forbid we have to charge into fucking no man's land with a bayonet and a wool shirt on and negative 10-degree weather with no functional shoes to protect your feet from frostbite. So it's just, um, it's just a different world. So... Eventually, however, the might of the Allied powers began to overwhelm that of the Central Powers. And when the United States jumped into the conflict to help the Allies out in 1917, we did not jump into the war early and we jumped in late to kind of close the thing out like the United States usually does, it was all but over. The writing was on the wall, and in order to save what was left of their countries and their souls, the Central Powers eventually conceded victory. And the leaders on both sides came together and decided to come to terms at what would be known as the Paris Peace Conference. 
And it was there that the war was officially ended with the drafting and signing of several pieces of legislation, which mo most notably was the aforementioned Treaty of Versailles. So in a war with this much carnage, this much destruction, one might think that mercy might be a good path to go down. That no matter how bad things got, we could find a way to swallow that jagged pill, clean our hands, and move on. But you would be wrong. The Allied powers were in a position to do such a thing. They didn't. They wanted to rub salt in the wound, to add insult to injury. They didn't want to get even with the Central Powers. They wanted to crush the Central Powers. To grind them so far into the dirt that they wouldn't dare try to rematerialize and stick their heads above the very dirt that encompassed their being again. The biggest target of this attack was Germany, the dominant player in the Central Powers. Germany was forced to cede several territories that they had taken to their original lands, reducing the size of their expanded empire down by incredibly large amounts. They were forced to disarm their entire country, relegating them powerless and completely at the mercy of the Allied powers, who were in the dominant position. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The Allied powers then introduced Article 231, which later became known as the War Guilt Clause. It ordered Germany to accept all the consequences of their defeat, and to pay reparations to some of the countries that formed the Allied powers out of their own pocketbook. And the problem with this was that Germany couldn't pay for it. And they, they couldn't even come close to paying for it. The war and their defeat had plunged Germany into a precarious economic recession. So they had no money to pay the Allies. You, you can see this trend throughout history as well. The, the team that loses the war generally does not have a lot of money after. Look at post-World War II Japan, for example. But the Allies didn't give them a choice. So after an exorbitant payment of approximately $442 billion in 1919 money, which would be a shit ton of money more now due to inflation and other things and the like, to the Allied powers with money that they did not have, Germany and the rest of the Central Powers fell into complete and utter economic and social hell. Kaiser Wilhelm, the monarchical leader of Germany, abdicated the throne before the treaty was signed, leaving an unstable leadership situation in a broken nation. Nearly Germany's entire economy had, had been focused on the war effort, but that type of econ needs, economy needs a shit ton of money to run effectively, and the Germans had none of it. That collapsed too, which sent unemployment skyrocketing. Breadlines soon formed, goods were hoarded, and everyone was scared out of their damn minds. But easily the most mind-blowing statistic that came out of this depression was the hyperinflation. So for those of you who aren't really hip on economics, um, inflation is just an economic term for the general rising of the price of a certain good or service. So let's take bread, for example. So if you go to the store on Monday and you buy a loaf of bread for $2 and you go back on Tuesday and the loaf of bread is $2.50, that's inflation. It's the general rising in price of a certain good or service. So hyperinflation is the extreme rising in the price of a certain good or service. And it's often uncontrollable. And you see, so look at Venezuela, for example. Venezuela is in shambles currently in large part due to this. Now, Venezuela has a lot of really big fucking problems. But a large economic problem was the hyperinflation. No one can afford anything. So this is when you go and buy a, piece, a loaf of bread for $2 on a Monday, and you come back on Friday and it's $200. Like, like no one can, that's an unsustainable model. So the one thing that is consistently affected by inflation and hyperinflation, because generally it can fluctuate between goods and services and whatever's in demand and not demand and all those other things, so the one thing that can be that is always usually affected by inflation and hyperinflation is currency. So whatever you pay for things in money, whether that's like U.S. dollars, um, pesos. I don't know if you like if people if you scalp people and pay people in scalps or human flesh or if that's your stick. I don't know. 
But so it's been estimated by several economic analysts that in November 1923, which was the height of the German disaster, one United States dollar was worth 4.2 trillion German marks. A loaf of bread, which cost an average of 160 German marks before the collapse, now costs 200 billion marks. So feel free to pick your jaw off the floor whenever you'd like. So, I mean, that, that's a really big fucking deal to a lot of people. When you cannot afford to eat, like, like this is going to, like, when people can't eat, bad shit happens. So change, so people can't eat, it's going out of control, you know, people are just kind of, what, what the fuck do we do? We can't pay for anything, we can't feed ourselves, we can't pay our rent, we can't pay our mortgage, what's going on? So, <clears throat> excuse me, when bad people, when, when people can't eat, bad shit happens. Change is demanded. Radical change is demanded. Now, by this point in the post-World War I era, about four years after 1919 and the Treaty of Versailles was signed, the formal central powers of Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, and Russia had all collapsed in favor of some new form of government. The people realized that living in the old world wasn't good enough for the new age. They were sick of monarchs ruling everything. They didn't adapt quick enough. They wanted what the Allied powers had, or at least an attempt to get something close. Russia was soon taken over by two guys named Lenin and Stalin. Austria and Hungary split into two different countries and became basically irrelevant in terms of being a major world power. The Ottoman Empire completely disintegrated, and Germany had no leader. With their Kaiser abandoning royalty, there was no one to step up and lead them out of the hell they were living in. But one person saw a vision. He was a former school teacher who went to fight during World War, II, world War I for the pride of his country. He was awarded medals and commended for his bravery. He was horrifically but temporarily blinded and rendered mute in an attack by British mustard gas, which was another really horrible thing that was happened. That's the chemical warfare thing. When the Kaiser surrendered and abdicated the throne, this person became incredibly angry. How could he let the Allies stomp over us, he thought? How could he betray the German people that, he thought, that everyone thought he loved? This man had had enough. He wanted blood, vengeance for his humiliated country. He wanted to remake Germany into what he had grown up envisioned it to being. He wanted the country to be a true voice of the people, where he came from. And more importantly, most importantly, he wanted to be the one, that, the one to do it. He wanted to be the one to lead them out of the abyss. He wanted this name to live forever. And he would get his wish. Because that man's name was Adolf Hitler. Hitler soon formed the Nazi party and propagated the quote-unquote stab-in-the-back legend, in which he blamed Kaiser Wilhelm for betraying the German people by deliberately letting the Allied powers squash Germany like a cockroach. He rebuilt the German military and started invading other countries to take back their former land that they were forced to give away. The rest of the world was terrified of Hitler and his randomly expanding influence. So, to avoid, him starting, to avoid starting another world war, they just let him do whatever the fuck he wanted. That's called appeasement. If you look that up, it was basically like, let's just avoid Hitler. Let's let him do what he wants. He's going to stay quiet. He's going to go away. He's not going to do anything. But then he started propagating Aryan race theory, which stated that anyone that was not an able-bodied German was inferior, including Jews, blacks, disabled people, anyone of the like. So when Germany invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939, some of the world finally took a stand, which sparked World War II. So they really didn't stick to the whole World War I being the war to end all wars promised too well. And when the dust settled, and as horrible as World War I was, World War II was infinitely worse. Between 75 and 85 million people were killed, potentially more than four times the amount during World War I. Half the world was left in complete and utter shambles. Nuclear weapons were deployed. The Holocaust happened. 
communism accelerated. As General William Tecumseh Sherman once said, war is hell. Now, I want to make this really clear. I am in no way justifying the actions of arguably being the most terrible human being to ever exist. I'm not. Okay? But what I want to point out is that the actions that led to the actions of arguably the most terrible human being to ever live, I want, you, I want to point those out. Not the actions of, of Hitler, but the actions that led to the actions of Hitler. Now, while there can be no single genesis to the cause of the deadliest conflict in recorded human history, the Treaty of Versailles on that fateful day in June of 1919 is a pretty popular one to throw a dart at, and with good reason. Because the Allied powers didn't have to make the Central Powers lick their boots. They didn't have to make them cry uncle, but yet they did anyway. Why? One can't be sure, but I would probably bet that the Allied powers didn't care for the Central Powers all that much, and for good reason. They killed a lot of people, a lot of whom they probably knew personally. They took a lot of fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons away from people back home, and they wanted to make them pay. So in order to make them pay, they decided to crush Germany and the other Central Powers as penance for their sins. But sometimes when you play God, you can unleash something you never thought could come up from the ether. And Hitler was that something. In grinding the old Germany into oblivion, a new Germany rose. One that the world would never forget. And we never can. The Allied powers succumbed to emotion and let it cloud their own judgment. So, does that sound familiar to a lot of the shit that is going on right now? So the last year, particularly probably the last since, since March, so 10 months, has been a perfect example of this phenomenon. I haven't lived in a year where more emotionally inflammatory issues have surfaced. And I asked my dad this question the other day because I was getting kind of getting kind of down in the dumps about the whole thing one day. And I was like, you know, dad, like, is it really, is it always this bad? And he's like, no. And so my dad, he turned 50 back in November. And it was hard for him to come up with a year that could top this one in the same category when I asked him then. And he's told me the other day that he said he's never seen a year this divided that he's ever been alive. So small sample size, I get it. But in the last 50 years, this last year has been probably the most volatile year in American history. So, and I want to let you guys know a sad thing, but true thing, and it's not going to slow down. Oh no, it is, it is not going to slow down. We've seen this with the, uh, with the people storming the Capitol building and people chucking bricks through, um, gelato stores in the name of Black Lives Matter or whatever. So again, not a political affiliation, not anything. It's just crazy people being crazy people and irrational people being irrational people. So, and there's more things to come. Coronavirus vaccines are up in the air. There's talk of more lockdowns. There's still people doing riots and a lot of other things. There's people that are going to be more riots potentially with the inauguration coming up. Conversations about police brutality and race relations aren't going away. But it is not these issues specifically that are causing the problem. Those are, they're just that. They're problems. It is not necessarily a big deal that we just elected a new president or that we had a vacancy on the Supreme Court that got filled really quick or that economic shutdowns could happen again and resulting in another quarantine. Those can be dealt with and solved. But this problem lies beyond the issue. And it's our perception of the problems themselves. Because we take sides during things. We have opinions. Sides and opinions that are skewed by a whole shitload of cognitive biases and distortions that we do a really fucking terrible job of controlling most of the time. Because really we can't. They're unconscious. We cannot control them. That's why they're unconscious. We can only control what happens after we think these things. Emotions can cloud your judgment. They can have us think worse or better of people and or things just to think worse or better of people and or things. We get skewed so heavily towards one side that we completely disregard the other. 
And, you know, God forbid something happens to our side. We just can't let that fucking shit go, can we? Oh, no. We have to get them back. We have to make them pay. We have to make them hurt. We have to assert ourselves. We will not be silenced, we scream. This is not a sustainable model. There is only so much that can go around. Nearly every resource is finite. When we discover that fact, we are left to fight over the scraps like animals. We break shit. In a relationship, it can mean trust. In the office, it can mean a promotion. In World War II, it can mean half the world. So I call this phenomenon emotional overcompensation. I've alluded to it multiple times in the past on my posts. Again, don't read this blog.com. I've put off writing about it for a while, but I think now is the perfect time to speak it into existence and give this enemy a face. We'll need it, especially in the times we're currently living and will, again, will be living in. We need to understand this now in order to avoid tearing each other to shreds in the future. Because now, more than ever, the stakes are high. We have this thing called artificial intelligence now. Big tech and your devices know everything about you. There are still nuclear weapons out there. Automation, opiates, and trade policy are carving out the center of America like a pumpkin on Halloween. We can completely obliterate a small country by the push of a button. We can destroy someone's life with the sending of an Instagram story. We can send communities into anarchy with one video. We can obliterate our own mental health with one poor choice. Emotional overcompensation is perhaps the, perhaps the root of most core problems of modern America. It's an incredibly difficult thing to dissect and even harder to solve. But in this podcast, I'm going to attempt to explain how emotional overcompensation happens, why it happens, and what we can do about it from, to stop it from literally fucking up everything in our lives. It's that toxic. We must find an antidote to this poison. So it might not be mustard gas, but getting rid of this thing would be an overwhelmingly good thing. Because let's face it, the world would be a much better place if mustard gas-esque things were not in it. And I repeat, not in it. So, how emotional overcompensation develops is like how a lot of things in this realm develop. It's a slippery slope to hell. We don't start off by calling people racist or radical Marxists on Twitter. No. A lot has to happen before we get to that point. It's actually been happening since the dawn of man. And it starts with our brains. So I, however, am absolute ass at anything related to the medical field. And I'm, I'm not good at science. I'm not good at a lot of this other stuff. So I'm going to pull from a man named Daniel Kahneman. So Daniel Kahneman is an Israeli-American Israeli -American psychologist and statistician. And so according to Kahneman and many other smart people like him, the brain is divided into two hyperbolic halves, a fast and a feeling brain and a slow and a thinking brain. The fast and feeling brain is incredibly quick and reactionary, and the slow thinking brain is incredibly pragmatic and methodical. These brains have not changed much over time. They've always been there. However, with the rapid acceleration of education and techno technological innovation, our slow brains have gotten much more adept. And if you want to read more about Daniel Kahneman, he has a phenomenal book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I recommend it to everybody because it, it's, it's essential reading now in this time due to everything that's going on in the world. And I think you would do yourself a great service to read it. So again, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's on Amazon. You can get it for like 10 bucks. So before those advancements, human beings were pretty simplistic creatures. Our fast brains were incredibly quick. When we saw something that was good to eat, we hunted and caught it. When we saw a partner of the opposite sex, we fucked its brains out and had kids. When we got burned on a fire, we didn't go near the fire again. But not a lot of depth went beyond that. We didn't think much about attacking an animal, even if it was a saber-toothed tiger who could rip our face off in approximately 2.18 seconds. We didn't think about choosing a partner who would be good material to mate with and the potentially inferior offspring we could rear. 
We didn't think that we could harness the fire to cook food or keep warm. And then this thing called evolution happened. Our slow brains kicked into gear, and they began to question our fast brains. So maybe we shouldn't approach the incredibly muscular animal with foot-long teeth with a pointy object in our hands. Maybe we should think about whose brains we fuck out before we make a mistake we'll regret. Maybe the whole fire thing isn't all that bad. So evolution, even though biology has a huge part to do with it, is as much man-made as anything. We had to evolve ourselves. And once we started to realize this, life gradually got better. We started inventing things like the wheel. We organized ourselves into tribes. We formed primitive systems of, systems of governance. We made laws. And the base layer of a somewhat civilized society started to crystallize. So and, much like interest, evolution compounds. After a while, it starts to accelerate, and rapidly. The struggles of our ancestor thousands of years ago seem fickle to us now. Most of us do not have to worry about starving to death or getting mauled by a saber-toothed tiger. We just get our Starbucks and potentially a shotgun to ward off those type of threats. But that doesn't mean, but that, doesn't mean that the fast brain went away. Far from it. Even though our society has evolved, our biology has stayed remarkably similar. We still look for the same qualities of attractiveness as we did. We still find certain things desirable to eat as we once did. We still desire the same traits of our families and friends that most did back in the cavemen days. And this is, um, this is something that Kahneman pro points out a lot too. In fact, if anything, our fast brains have evolved as well. Our slow brain would blow dick at attempting to drive a car. It would be awful at attempting to save a life on a trauma floor at an ICU. It would be piss poor at figuring out what to do if someone pulled a knife on you and your family walking home from your daughter's birthday dinner in an Outback Steakhouse. So there's simply not time to think slow during these occasions. You must think fast and protect yourself and those around you. The fast and slow brains are natural. The way they, the way that they they're the way that we function in everyday society. Evolution has wired us to act and think in these certain ways as a form of protection and survival. But there's a cost to this, and one we don't think of very often. When threatened, we tend to not go back to that happy medium we had before. We tend to go a little bit further down the line than we were. And why? Well, because our fast brain tells us so. Its primary function is to ensure our survival. If we got hurt at the old threshold of where we were before, then the old threshold may not work anymore. So thus, the fast brain sets a new threshold of comfort comfortability and safety, one that was further beyond the line that we once had. And this is the root of over emotional overcompensation. But in most cases, it's not a bad thing. Don't touch the hot stove, don't pull your sister's hair, don't talk back to your parents. So a potential natural reaction would be to see if the stove is hot, find a better way of engaging your conflict with your sister, and engaging in constructive questioning with your parents. All is well, and this is healthy. But some people take these things too far. They can avoid the stove entirely and not cook. They can not confront their sister about anything and let her walk all over them. They could sit quietly and still at all times, not daring to engage their parents in simple conversation. This is not at all being well. This is unhealthy. And when left unchecked, this can spiral out of control. The slippery slope commences into full effect. Our fast brain begins to slowly but surely overwhelm our slow brain, and biases begin to emerge. Cognitive distortions begin to run rampant. Thresholds get thrown way the fuck out of whack all over the place and a whole fucking lot of different issues. And this slippery slope leads us to become incredibly reactionary. We start to become paranoid. We think that everything around us is a threat simply because it makes us uncomfortable. It could cause us pain and suffering, so it must be destroyed and dominated. This is a problem for any society, but it is a special problem for the one in which we currently live. And the reason is because we live in the most potentially reactionary time in human history. Think about the clickbait videos with all capital letters you poured over on YouTube today. 
All the headlines on Facebook, quote-unquote, bravely calling out the opposing side of the argument by attacking their morals and sense of virtue. All your colleagues around you being triggered by the content of an exam or the specifications of a project at school or at work. So this is a bizarre phenomenon, and the roots of that strange phenomenon are perhaps even more so. And the roots of this can be traced back to approximately 120 years prior, so going back to the early 1900s. In the, late, or the early 1900s, a man named Edward Bernays came into the public eye. An immigrant from Austria, Bernays was, was looking for a start in America that would jumpstart a success, like a lot of immigrants back in the day. So he eventually found work as a commentator and a journalist. He critiqued plays and a bunch of other things. So however, that and the rest of the world changed with the rise of the first movement of modern feminism. Women had only gained the right to vote a decade earlier, but many were still unsatisfied with their treatment in the rest of society. They viewed that they were still perceived as inferior to men, and in a lot of the ways they were correct. Bernays, seeing this trend, devised a revolutionarily odd but brilliant, absolutely brilliant idea. He decided to sell them cigarettes. So Bernays, along with the big tobacco companies, rolled out the Torches of Freedom campaign as a veiled way of communicating women's equality. You see, if you can smoke with them, you can equal them. At least that's what Bernays and the corporations that backed him said was true. Big Tobacco had been stonewalled by the women's cigarette market for years. It just simply it just wasn't popular with women. It wasn't ladylike. Only the men smoked. And this was a problem for Big Tobacco. They were missing about on half their potential market share. And, as we all should realize, the customer lifetime value for addictive products is not something that people who make those addictive products want to miss out on. So Bernays, the pioneer of modern emotional overcompensation, solved that problem for them. Women soon began buying cigarettes by the carton, inhaling the toxins within them with reckless abandon to try to appear equal to men, to make a statement. Did this help? I don't think anyone is entirely really sure. I don't know if you can quantify it with data in any way. But all I know is that sure as shit helped Bernays and Big Tobacco, because they made billions off this idea. And thus, modern marketing was born. Bernays would be later named as one of the top 100 most influential Americans of the whole 20th century by Time magazine. His later clients would, improve, would include Procter & Gamble, the United Fruit Company, and the United States government when they orchestrated the overthrow of the government of Guatemala. So yeah, he, he deserved that spot. He was a pretty important guy. So Bernays was the first person in modern world history to weaponize the fast brain to overturn emotional overcompensation in his favor. Propagandists in totalitarian countries followed him, including the satanic Joseph Goebbels of Hitler's aforementioned Nazis. Every large company does this now in their marketing departments. They convince you through things like commercials and Facebook ads and whatever that you need this product. You might need it, but you might not. But they don't care as long as you buy it. As Nicky Santoro said in Casino, it's the dollars. It's always the fucking dollars. And, like anything that evolves... The influence of Edward Bernays is felt in nearly every aspect of our modern culture in the form of the effects I listed earlier. This paranoia and triggering effect causes us to heighten the capabilities of the slow brain due to the ever-increasing stimuli around us. And, honestly, who can blame it? Edward Bernays was a fucking genius, and I, I shit you not, Sigmund Freud, the legendary psychologist, was his uncle. So, he had, he had pretty, pretty uh, you know, good stream of genes flowing from the gene pool down there. So... Oh, and so one last thing about Bernays, by the way. So he believed the masses to be absolute fucking idiots. He said they were easily swayed by emotion, hint, the fast brain, and could be hijacked and controlled with simple messaging. So 
that's big tech, that's mainstream media. But in all seriousness, Bernays, like the modern-day Elon Musk and Kanye West, was light years ahead of his time. He was a genius. He probably predicted 2020 before we even hit 1920. So, but what do we end up with in the last year? Well, with exactly what Bernays predicted. We ended up getting a society of emotionally devoid people who must greater than equalize everything because they feel attacked from all sides. And people know what's going on. They're not stupid. They know that they're being influenced. But that begs the question, so why does nothing change? Why does a slow brain fail to kick in so many times? And the simple answer is because we let it. We do not even attempt to stop it. It's too hard. It's easier to let that wave wash over us. It makes us feel better. It is emotional overcompensation, by the way. Because it feels better to obliterate your ex-girlfriend's life by leaking her nudes to your boys who then leak them to the world rather than cope with your feelings in a mature manner and not to, some, to come to some toxic, immature state of masculinity. It feels better to call someone a white nationalist rather than just admit they, that they, as a sovereign human being, can have a different way of seeing the world. Even worse, they could have voted for the very bad orange man on November 3rd. Gasp. It feels better to yell at your children for something that you very well know that they didn't mean to do than own up to the inherently more responsible individual, fix their mistake, take ownership, and impart lessons onto them. These are the wrong things to do. We should be better than this to people, and we know it. We are one race, the human race, and we should hold ourselves to the common decency of treating each other that are not at all that different from us with the same amount of dignity and respect as we do ourselves. We could be better to one another. We don't have to succumb to emotional overcompensation and treat each other like fucking crap. We can choose to be better, to not punch down, and to take the high ground, the right ground, extending a hand to those who we know full well we should not exert our will against. Anything else would clearly be wrong by almost every higher virtue you can imagine. But yet we still lean into it. We still attack people. We still emotionally overcompensate. I try not to, but I do. And a lot of you do too. So why is this? So in the reason that I believe emotional overcompensation leads to most problems in our modern world is that it's so damn easy to do it now. It's so easy. We don't even know that we are, we don't even know that we are half the time. So it's sub, it's so subconscious. I've checked out social media in a lot. I've checked out of social media rather in a lot of ways, but I remember the wild west I left. If anything is the toilet of emotional overcompensation that makes everything smell like shit, social media would be it. We're constantly analyzing things. With our current mediums to do things, including social media, all-day news cycles, networks, our inability to be mindful, etc., we are constantly bombarded with opportunities. This excess of exposure is most definitely a factor in the wild amounts of overcompensation that we see. Give Dave Chappelle a politically correct statement and he can't help himself. Give Charlie Asheen a line of coke and he can't help himself. Give Ric Flair an attractive blonde woman from 1986 and he can't fucking help himself. But the root of the question remains. We already know how this happens, as discussed prior, but why does it happen? Why do we come to succumb to emotional overcompensation so often and so easily? So I personally believe that it's for a, a myriad of reasons. I spoke a lot about cognitive biases in the, uh, a couple minutes ago, which I believe, which I will detail with my first point momentarily. However, I do believe that the greater scheme of our culture and the pressures it puts on us as its reigning society create even more opportunities for us to abuse our power of observation to create emotional overcompensation. We cannot simply blame everything on our unconscious selves. That would be ducking responsibility. And as discussed many times by me, that is impossible. 
It is something you should never get in the habit of doing. Not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility. And that's where I'll kick off my first point about our inherent biases and mental skews. As proven by things such as evolutionary biology and general societal norms, we like to feel in control. We generally like it when we feel like we have a handle on things and when we can feel like we can be independent creatures that can adequately take care of ourselves. We feel the same way with our emotional well-being. We don't like when we have to feel that others have more control over our own selves than we do. However, this desire for control can turn into a desire for domination if we let it. We can become so defensive based on the overreaction to that stimuli that we, like we talked about earlier that we can desire emotional control and stability above all else. So in the words of Jordan Peterson, we stick completely into order and no, leave no room for the necessity of chaos. That's actually how the roots of fascism and the Nazis started. They desired control over everything else. That's what they did. So in order to avoid the dread of an uncertainty of chaos and not being in control, we exert our power in the one way that we know will put us in the position of power, at least in our own minds, emotionally. We create avenues of avoidance by paving them with our reactionary emotional outbursts. This can be both large and subtle. So if you want a large example, no, look no further than the first presidential debate we had. No matter what side you were, all, you were on, that shit was all emotional overcompensation. Not a lot was done and no minds were changed. Debates really don't change minds anyway. There's polls on this, but that really, th that didn't help matters. I'll just say that much. So for a more subtle example, let's perhaps look at the most undoubtedly painful thing we've all gone through most likely, which is a breakup. It's funny that this doesn't get talked about more. And I've only had one serious relationship in my life, and I thought getting out of it would be simply easy because it gets mocked and tossed aside in mediums like Barstool and Call Her Daddy as mere casual occurrences. But this could not be further from the truth, because breakups fucking hurt, and they stick with you for a long time. So long, in fact, that I don't think, I, I don't think they leave for months. So I broke up with my last girlfriend a while ago, and we just talked for the last time during this week, so she completely wanted to cut off communication. Um... She has a new boyfriend. He makes a lot of money. He's very successful. He's older than her, most likely much more secure in his identity than I could hope to be right now. He's much more her type than I am. And you know what? When I first heard that, that fucking shit killed me. Our relationship was distant. We lived in two different cities and only saw each other once in person before we entered into our relationship. But yet, during those eight months, I still felt closer to her than anyone I'd ever met. I told her things that I wouldn't dare say on the internet. The big tech mongers that are friends are the ones that run my company would notify them immediately. I seriously thought that maybe, just maybe, I could put the whole stupid casual dating thing to the side, settle down with this girl, get married early like I'd always wanted to, and grow together. And, and that, 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 that just didn't happen. It was an incredibly messy relationship, and both of us did things during it that we, carried, we both carried with us for a long time. I don't have a lot of friends, and it hurts enough to lose one of them. But to lose I, the person I cared for most deeply than I cared for anyone else in my entire life? Slip my jugular vein with a chainsaw, please. It fucking crushed me, like I said earlier. But what was worse was that she was able to move on so quickly. It's probably because she's an amazingly wonderful person. She deserves someone who can be better to her and her amazing wonderfulness. And that's what made it sting. I wanted so much to be mad at her, to call her a bitch and a hoe, to tell her that she was in the wrong. But she wasn't. And like Dolores Umbridge said, I must not tell lies. I emotionally overcompensated. I tried so hard to let pessimistic emotions ruin the perception of my ex-girlfriend when there was clearly none to ruin. Yet so many people find a way to do this. I don't know how easy it is, or I now know how easy it is. It's painful as all hell to watch that. 
But so many of those same people take that pain and reflect it upon the other person as a cheap way to regain some emotional control and stability. And this is only not only wrong, but it's dishonest. You're, it's, it's lying to yourself. You're forcing your fast brain to kick into overdrive in order to compensate for your lack of emotional stability in that moment. You can't even entertain chaos. You can only live in the world of order, where everything has to be your way. That is a world that you cannot live in. It's not a sustainable model. Just ask any fascist dictator ever, like seriously ever. But if there's one thing about fascists that can be stripped down to the studs, and I mean the very, very stripped studs, it's that they're competitive. They want their cause and their party and their people to win at all costs. It's one of the people, the reasons that people have reached the way the fuck out there to call President Trump and other people that back him fascists. They're competitive as all hell, no matter what you think of the man. They're not passive. They're aggressive. They want to win and they'll do anything to do it. I mean, just look at the Capitol building last week. And coming from a business school education, I can tell you that this is simply not a political argument. The business world is more cutthroat than it's ever been particularly in the lower levels where the monopolies of big tech and the oligarchies of finance and pharma preside over everyone and throw scraps to the people clawing at them from below. The competition is fierce in every possible way, from jobs to survival to wages. There is no lane in business, and increasingly in life in general, that is not competitive. Let's take Instagram, particularly towards women in this case. As taught by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff in the book The Coddling of the American Mind, which is a phenomenal book. Again, I recommend everyone to read it. The Coddling of the American Mind on Amazon by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. One of the most commonplace misperceptions about the differences between female and male genders is that males are much more aggressive and thus competitive, theoretically, than women. This simply is not true, according to the science cited and provided by the two gentlemen who wrote the book. In fact, men and women, generally speaking, display the same amounts of aggression. There's hardly any difference or variation. But the difference is simply how it's deployed. Men display aggression in the stereotypical way, fighting one another, talking shit, pissing contests in the bathroom, whatever. Women, however, display it socially. While men try to compete with each other in more physical ways, women try to destroy other women by dropping a nuclear bomb in her psyche and social life. So on Instagram... Women get more likes when their pictures are deemed more attractive by others, men and women included. Men think they're hot and want to fuck them, so they like their posts, send it to their boys, they talk about it, all that other stuff. Women who are friends with the women who posted gas her up in her comments and repost in their stories in order to assert that woman's social dominance. The women who compete against the women who posted will do usually one of the two things. I have a lot of women friends and I asked them about this actually before I went on here and wrote this podcast and this is what they told me. The first is that they'll simply try to upload a hotter picture. They'll stick their ass out more, they'll show more cleavage or skin, touch up their face in their preferred picture-altering vehicle of their choice, etc. The second is that they'll do so the same thing that the men do. Screenshot the picture, send it to their girlfriends, and have a group row section about how fake and tacky she looks. Women will also do this in ways like talking to men at bars, spreading rumors, snapchatting a girl's ex-boyfriend, and hyping up her otherwise normal social life with me social media posts with her on a rooftop bar or a club, Something like that. Anything to assert their social dominance. It's why guys post gym pictures, wear tight shirts, and talk extra loudly when it's inappropriate to do so. Anything to assert their masculine dominance. Competition is a mild form of emotional overcompensation. This is competition, by the way. There are winners and losers. There are no participation trophies here. The problem lies in when we get greedy. When we don't want to just win. The problem reaches a critical point when we choose to destroy the other side of the argument. This is the I'm going to fuck your dad or look how small his dick is tactic. It's not enough to know whether you're the superior man or the woman. 
you have to degrade the other side in the process. So, however, as we've touched upon this before, there's a problem with greed. Greed leads to diminishing returns of value. At some point, you'll plateau and you'll start to descend downward. The chocolate, case can, the chocolate cake can only taste good for so long until you get fat and start seeing it for the empty calories and raw sugar that it is. The, fir the first vodka crayon tastes amazing. The tenth leaves you puking in the bathroom Jennifer Carpenter in white chick style with a girl holding up your hair to avoid it to from sticking together for the next 12 hours. With emotional overcompensation, this happens as well. You can only go so far. You can only try so hard to call everyone who rightly who disagrees with you a radical leftist before people rightly call you a right-winging idiot. You can only try to assert your dominance over your girlfriend so much before it consumes you and you eventually get physical with her. Or, better yet, she leaves your ass for someone who treats her with much more respect. You can only want so much of more things before you end up crashing your shit. Which leads to the ultimate point, which is the peak vice of emotional overcompensation. When you're so focused on beating the other person, the quality of your victory can start to be confused with something else. There's a big difference between the focus of being right versus getting it right. They are not the same thing. A focus on being right leads to massive ignorance. It turns the focus on dominating the competition with no respect for their viewpoint or articulation of the argument. Essentially, you turn into a mob member, or the social media mob, right or left, doesn't matter, regardless of the position. So sure, you'll win a lot of arguments, at least in your own mind, but you don't in reality. In reality, you just come off like a fucking chump. You won't win anything. You'll just be a blithering asswipe ass who just is so narcissistically and focused on asserting his or her intellectual quote-unquote dominance over the other person that you toss aside any shred of human decency towards the person you're facing. You won't be courteous or polite or anything resembling that. You're so focused on fi filling an emotional hole overflowing with your own virtue that what you were trying to stay, say gets lost in the sauce. And this can, obviously, prove problematic in multiple ways. You could end up focusing on the wrong things and blaming the wrong people or elevating the wrong issues. We see this going on right now on both sides of the aisle with all the social issues regarding police brutality and race relations. You become so obsessed with asserting your, asserting your misplaced sense of virtue that you lose the true virtue and angle of what you're saying. You simply become an untamed menace, or an asshole, if you will. And no one, regardless of any manner of division, likes an asshole. This is the combination of the first and second points of what I was just saying. You combine your natural desire to compete with your unconscious biases until they form a perfectly blended cocktail of emotionally overcompensatory ignorance. You become woke, and no one wants to be that. Right or left, doesn't matter. You use your blunt instrument of woke or anti-woke behavior to wield against your enemies, vanquishing as soon as them as soon as they challenge your argument. And this, of course, is bad for civilized and democratic society. Because if we can't have discourse or disagreement that eventually leads to compromise, we are not living in a civilized and democratic society. Two cultures cannot exist within one society. It's not sustainable. If history has taught us anything, it is that. Look at the aforementioned Germany, for example. We must be unified in our goals and ambitions as a cohesive group of people. We don't have to agree on our methods, but the goals must be the same. Emotional overcompensation destroys that ambition. It wrecks any chance of people coming together, probably because that person who is overcompensating becomes too hell-bent on destroying the other side, no matter who they may be. This must not be allowed to run rampant. Emotional overcompensation is a horrible thing, one that does much more harm than good in a majority of cases. Healthy competition is good, unhealthy competition is toxic. In order to undo emotional overcompensation, we must create constructive steps in order to rid ourselves of it. 
So like I said, this is a very complex problem in society. And what I say to everyone with a massively complex problem is try to solve it on the individual level first. So that's what we're going to try to do. So there are some steps you can take to reduce your own emotional or your own personal bouts of emotional overcompensation. An emotionally balanced society starts off with a bunch of, a bunch of emotionally balanced individuals, like I was saying earlier. It is there where we must find our, begin our journey towards becoming better. So the first suggestion I would make is accepting that you are only can be in control of you, not the actions of other people. This is something that's very hard to do, especially for a control freak like myself. I'm a very highly conscientious person. It's one of the reasons that for a very long time I saw little purpose or necessity in organized religion. Then the beer virus came and I realized that I wasn't in control of jack shit and my philosophy changed. But this really has nothing to do with religion, but with your own sovereignty as a person. Accepting control for the things that only you're in control of is incredibly difficult. Comparing yourself to only the person you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today, that's rule number four, by the way, Jordan B. Peterson, 12 Rules for Life, another great book, and to what someone else has now is so difficult. So let's go back up to the break, back to the breakup scenario. The toughest pill to swallow was easily the fact that there were things in which I could not change. I could only control myself. I could not control my ex-girlfriend. I can only compare myself to myself. I cannot compare myself to my ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. And the reason why was because there were simply too many variables, too many differences. It's never a good thing to compare two things that are contrasting that starkly. We're both humans, but that doesn't mean we're all that similar. But oh, I wanted to. I really fucking wanted to. I wanted to call that guy a piece of garbage, and I really don't think he is. I wanted to call a curl into a ball and cry because I felt so empty romantically that a girl I thought could potentially marry could potentially marry someone else. I don't know if that's true or not, and I never will. I wanted to try to keep it going, even though we would have had to go distance for years, and I probably would have been deprived of experiencing the rest of my life, which is probably not a good idea in most cases. The fact is, doing that would have been a disservice to me. Me emotionally overcompensating to make myself feel better would not have done anything constructive or productive. It simply would have just made me even more miserable, and it still does. I'm working on it right now. I think I'm a pretty decent person who does pretty decent things like respect people and meet people where they are and everything everyone tells me I'm going to be fine. Maybe I need to get out of my own head and listen to them. But these people are sometimes too lenient on me. When advising these people on these type of scenarios, I have always asked them one question. What if it was you? It was hard to do it on myself, but I would have been, it would have been a strict violation of hypocrisy if I didn't. When I really looked at things, I learned that it was kind of a, that I was kind of a shitty boyfriend. It made sense. Most people are like that when they take their first crack at something. When you take your first crack at doing anything, you're probably going to be pretty shit at it, shitty at it. We weren't that faithful to one another, and that goes both ways. We both emotionally manipulated one another. That goes both ways, too. I certainly was taking a part in that, and I'm ashamed for that, but that's just what it is. I confused honesty with being insensitive too many times for my liking. I was demanding emotionally. That can't be healthy for a woman to deal with. So no wonder she got sick and tired of that for someone who's been around the block a couple times. It hurt like a motherfucker to say that and to come to terms with that. But to not do so would be not acknowledging my inner authenticity. I fucked that up. I own that. I'm at peace with being an awful human being sometimes because it happens to all of us. In only controlling what you can control, you can create an atmosphere of emotionally intelligent people and you're an emotionally intelligent, sovereign individual that you cannot simply grasp when you emotionally overcompensate. 
you simply drown yourself in a slurry of lies and self-manipulations. So I would avoid doing this. I wish my ex-girlfriend well. I truly do. I do not want her to suffer because she's a wonderful person, like I said before. Wonderful people deserve wonderful things. Do not think that they do not. You will cheat yourself of their wonderfulness, and the world needs it. The second thing that I would say would be advantageous would be to recognize that, as much as our society tricks us into it, not everything is a competition. We compete a lot, but eventually you need to settle with what you know is good for you. Competition can drive people insane. It can drive people to do horrible things. Just ask anyone who's soon to be outed by Ghislaine Maxwell, they'll tell you. But only as soon as they're in prison or quote-unquote commit suicide like Jeffrey Epstein did, but that's neither here nor there. When people compete in every aspect of life, they derive themselves from the joy that life can bring them. Since competition is a mild form of overcomp emotional overcompensation, as we've covered, this needs to be covered with extreme caution. When things happen, you need to stay even keeled and deal with them in order to make the best move forward. So, breaking news. You're probably not going to marry the hottest person you know. You're probably not going to marry the smartest person you know. You're probably not going to marry the most successful person you know, whatever you define success as. You're probably not going to be friends with all the popular people. Your job will not all, will always have headaches and stressors no matter what it is. Your kids will most likely be fuck-ups in one way or another. No competition can avoid that fact. If you spend your entire life trying to pursue things like this, you will never find them because perfect doesn't exist. Emotionally overcompensating to find these scenarios will only lead to further pain and suffering from what you already feel. You'll be walking blindfolded through a maze. You'll never be able to get out. You'll have to hope some Jason Voorhees-esque serial killer comes and slash you in half with a machete just to get some fucking mercy by the end of the day. So John Wooden, the legendary collegiate basketball coach who won 10 national championships for LSU and coached legends like Lou Alcindor, who, if you guys don't know, became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he converted to Islam, Gail Goodrich, and Bill Walton, had great, has a great and constructive comparison that helps in this scenario. Wooden described two words, intensity and emotion. The first was good, the second was bad. Intensity is simply being completely focused on the moment and not losing context. Emotion is being in the moment with no context. Emotionality and intensity often get swapped for one another, but they should not be. One is balanced, the other unbalanced. Emotional overcompensation is all about being unbalanced, going over the tipping point and losing control. When you pursue intensity rather than emotion, which fuels healthy versus unhealthy competition, you will be able to hold your head above water and breathe in all the information you need to succeed. All that remains is your choice to see it. Which brings me to my final point. What is it you need to see? It's not just any information. It is the truth. And you must always search for truth. You must never search for the win just out of the sake of doing so. This leads to narcissism, which leads to a whole other slew of other issues and problems. These narcissists only seek their side of the argument simply to prove that they're right. And they, to their defense, I mean I don't want to defend a narcissist here, but I'm going to, they could be. But the problem is that they don't choose to see it. They succumb to unhealthy competition and degrade their own argument just to, to appease their weak emotional psyches. Emotional overcompensation overtakes them until they only see the dogma, not the discourse. They then will create every avenue to destroy the other side. This is common enemy politics, social media shaming, and woke culture in a nutshell. It's all the same thing, but just another spin-off or branch of how it manifests itself into existence. People only see you as some off-the-cuff crazy person who cares about asserting his or her intellectual virtue upon everyone else. It's unappealing and unattractive. You should stop while you're ahead. Most importantly, 
you cheat yourself of the real message that is involved with what you're trying to say. When you emotionally overcompensate, you shove the validity of your argument to the wayside in order to create the assertion that is completely unrelated to what you're actually trying to say. It gets lost in the sauce, never to be recovered. The sauce is, the sauce is sticky and thick, if you remember the words of the wise correctly. So in the end, emotional overcompensation has its roots stashed in basic human instinct, but is weaponized by us constantly in order to cover for our lackluster opinions and metaphysical weaknesses. It is never used constructively when we use it for selfishness and narcissism, because nothing is. Only through constant regulation of how we're feeling can we attempt to forge a good emotional connection with ourselves, and therefore the world. In the days of clickbait and outrage, this can be hard to do. It can seem nearly impossible. But it is possible if we are willing to make the hard choices and see beyond those petty things that hold us back. Emotional overcompensation is emotional weakness. Too many confuse it as a strength and do not be one of those people. The United States learned their lesson, hopefully, with the Treaty of Versailles. John Wooden learned it through his coaching tenure at UCLA. Haidt and Lukianoff learned it through research and study. Bernays learned it through marketing and sales. And you can learn it, too, if you have the guts to tap in that deep. And it's something that we need to do. We need to do this, and we need to fight the good fight collectively. Because if we don't, and just keep emotionally overcompensating ejaculating all over one another, then we're going to have these same problems happen. And I challenge you at the end of this podcast to become just a little more emotionally aware, a little bit more emotionally saturated with how you feel about different things. Because I guarantee you, if you are cognizant of these things, you can make a difference in how you interact with people and your world. And if you make your world a little better with how you regulate your emotions and not throwing them to the side, but just seeing how you react to people and things. If you make your world a little better, you'll make the grand world a little better. And it's a domino effect. I promise you it is. So that is one thing that I really wanted to focus on with this this podcast today. And, you know, I know it was a whopper. There was a lot of things in there. And, you know, I appreciate you guys uh, learning about my bedroom closet and all the other, you know, things that I say to kind of talk to myself while I'm, in, I'm actually in my bedroom closet right now. I, my quote unquote studio is on here. It's not a studio. It's a MacBook and a mic I bought for $5 on Amazon. But I mean, again, emotionally overcompensating, who knows? So, so thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, new episodes drop every week on Sunday. Uh, blog posts are up. Uh, do, don't, don't read this blog.com. Uh, don't re- listen to this podcast available on all podcasting platforms, large and small. And if you want to follow me, it is at real Sam Lax, R E A L S A M L A X on Instagram. And if you need anything, uh, reach out to me. It's uh, sam at don'treadthisblog.com. I'd love to get back to you and talk to you guys about anything regarding things about this post, future topics, anything you would want to hear from me. And my goal with this podcast, again, is to be a method for increased conversation. So if you guys want to have a conversation about anything, anything I said in the podcast, anything I say on my blog, I'm down to have it. Just let's let's have the conversations because we're not going to have them without people getting the guts to have them. So I'll leave you with that. Have a great week. Own the day and open your mind. Thank you for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nino Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I make some grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?